1: In our program, we move into a discussion now with uh, Betty Steinberg. Uh, Betty Steinberg is a chief scientific officer with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. She's an investigator in the Center for Oncology and Cell Biology with the Institute, director of laboratory of papillomavirus Papalo- Papal- uh, uh, research. Virus. Virus. Yep. Uh, research for the Institute and Professor and Dean uh, Elmezi Graduate School of uh, Molecular Medicine, Professor and Chair, Department of Molecular Medicine at Hofstra North Shore, LIJ School of Medicine. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, she's kind enough to be joining us on our program. We'll be talking, uh, first of all, a little bit of background about uh, the Institute itself. And uh, I think this is going to be a Area where you're going to learn some things, and it's also going to take us into a couple of different areas where we've never gone before on this program, which is something I always enjoy. And uh, Betty, thank you for joining us on our program.
2: You're very welcome.
1: The institutes. what's the origin of it?
2: Okay, so the, the Feinstein Institute is the research arm of the North Shore LIJ Health System, which as you know is a very large system with many hospitals. But we also conduct a lot of research and that's all part of the Feinstein.
1: How long has the institute from this research arm been in place?
2: About fourteen years. So when you compare us to other research institutes, we're babies. But um The research scientists at the Feinstein have a lot of years of experience and are well-known in their fields, so we just kind of grew up fast.
1: How did you get into this field?
2: I started in research way back, and I have to apologize for my voice. I'm getting over a cold, so even scientists aren't immune to (laughs) colds. Um, I started in in research at LIJ in 1980, working on papillomaviruses when they were first being discovered. And um, I've been working as, as a scientist ever since, and as time went on, my career developed. Then when North Shore and LIJ merged and the Feinstein Institute was formed, I was asked to serve as chief scientific officer.
1: When we use that term, papillomavirus, what exactly
2: is that? Papillomaviruses are a family of viruses. They're a a large family of very closely related viruses that cause both benign and malignant tumors. The most well-known benign tumor is a wart. A common skin wart is caused by papillomavirus. The ones I work on infect the airway and the genital tract. These viruses cause genital warts, and they cause cervical cancer. They can cause some anogenital cancers. That's been in the news recently. And they also can infect the throat, so they cause... Benign and malignant tumors in the throat. Mostly for malignant tumors, they cause tonsil cancer.
1: When we talk about our knowledge with the papilloma viruses, you know, we've, we've heard um, talk in recent years about HPV or the human papilloma virus. How far back does this area of uh, study go?
2: I'm sorry, could you repeat How that? How
1: far back historically does the area of study of papilloma viruses go?
2: You know, it's funny. Everybody thinks this is something new, but the papillomavirus was the first virus that was ever seen in an electron microscope. People have been doing research on this virus for more than 100 years. But most of what we know now has happened in the last 20 when we had all the modern molecular techniques
1: and when we talk about the way in which this virus affects people in this country you know you've mentioned it can affect them in several different ways what are we talking about in terms of numbers of people who are affected by i guess various forms of papillomavirus
2: in the genital tract, because this is a virus that's transmitted sexually, um, it's transmitted by contact. So in the genital tract, it's sexual. Skin papillomavirus is caused just by skin contact. But in the genital tract, if a woman is sexually active, she's got about an 85% likelihood of being infected. And the important thing is that once you're infected by one of these viruses, you have it, we think, for the rest of your life. It may not cause disease. And, in fact, most infections never show up as any disease. The virus is just there in a silent form. But um, you have it, and you carry that viral DNA for the rest of your life. That's why it's so important. We have the new vaccine now. There's two vaccines, Gardasil and Cerverex, that protect against the two HPV family members that cause most cervical cancer. And the recommendation is that kids should get this vaccine at 10 to 12 years old. The reason is you need to have the vaccine before you're exposed to these types.
1: When you talk about the vaccines, as I believe you alluded to and some of the people listening to us know, there is some controversy uh, around them. Why is this?
2: I think there's a lot of controversy for several reasons. Um, First of all, people don't really understand it. People are a little put off, some people by the fact that we're dealing with a sexually transmitted disease. And um, almost none of us like to think that our 10-year-olds are ever going to be sexually active, you know, maybe when they're 40, but um, certainly not in their teens, and, and yet they are. And I think that's one of the big reasons why people are a little, it's kind of a head in the sand kind of approach, but People do feel that.
1: If that's the case, and I have no reason to doubt you that it is the case, then how do we get past that?
2: Education, um, convincing people that, you know, it's really a major achievement that we have a vaccine that can prevent a cancer. There's no other cancer that we can do that with and we just have to we have to just talk about it doctors have to talk about it to their patients and encourage them to get it there's a lot of stuff on the internet put out by a small group of people who are mostly against any vaccines they just they're anti-vaccine and they if you go on the web You can find all these scare stories about girls who have died after getting this vaccine. And there are a few who have died. The first one I know of was a teenager, and this was while it was still being studied before it was approved, uh, who got the vaccine and five weeks later was killed in an automobile accident. But she died shortly after getting the vaccine.
1: But well, wait a minute, that had nothing, obviously, to do with the fact that she had gotten the vaccine.
2: Exactly. But when when something happens to someone related, possibly, or even just time-wise related, it gets reported to the government, and it goes up on a list of all the things that ever happened that were associated with that vaccine. doesn't mean the vaccine caused it at all, but it
1: gets on the list. Well, if that's the case, Betty, then what's what's the feedback, what's the talk um, among your colleagues in the science field, even in the medical field, about how, I guess, how to even initiate discussion um, on this? Because that's the role of, the doctor and patient here, is an important one. And as you mentioned, getting an area like this started in discussion can be awkward.
2: It can be, but doctors are usually pretty good at that. And uh, I think we just have to keep trying. Other places, other parts of the world, more than 85% of the kids are being vaccinated. So it can be done here, too. But you know, doctor-patient interactions are important in all areas, especially important in doing research studies. We do a lot of clinical research at the Feinstein as well as our basic research. And you had asked me earlier what the Feinstein's all about. The thing that makes us unique is that all of our research is associated with disease. Our, our tagline, if you want, our, our little short motto, is we study disease to cure disease. And, and having patients participate in clinical trials is a big part of that. Having them open and knowledgeable about what's going on is important. That's why I'm so delighted to be able to talk with you.
1: There's a lot of, in a way, mystery isn't there, surrounding that whole idea of patient trials?
2: There's there's a lot of concerns about it. Some people say, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens if if this drug being studied, you know, might not work? Um, Or even other people say, well, I might not get the drug. I might be in the placebo group or the control group that doesn't even get the treatment, why should I participate? Well, there's lots of reasons to participate. First of all, you're helping advance medical science, and you're really improving health for all the people that have this disease like you have or that might have it in the future. So that makes you feel good to know you're helping, but there's another reason why you should participate in clinical studies, you get better care. There is data that shows that patients in clinical studies, even the patients in the control side, do better. And that's because they get lots more attention. In our modern medical system, doctors are very rushed and pressured and... You just have lots more access to your doctor when you're in a clinical study. So everybody wins.
1: Betty Steinberg from the Feinstein Institute talking with us on our program. Radio.com.
2: Radio.
0: Radio.com.
1: We're talking on our program on The Fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019 with Betty Steinberg. She is Chief Scientific Officer with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research, and she's our guest on uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Solter. A lot of areas to go in our discussion. Your research in the areas of human papillomavirus, what kind of discoveries has that led to?
2: Well, I've been working on a rather rare disease, but a very serious disease caused by these viruses called respiratory papillomas, where the virus infects the throat and then causes benign warty growths that grow in the throat. And they're benign, they're not malignant, but they can block the airway. And so if you don't remove them surgically, then you could suffocate. And the problem is they recur. You operate and then they come back. And you operate and you, they come back. We have kids who have, and half of the patients are little kids, we have kids who've needed 100 operations by the time they're five years old. So it's a dreadful disease. And I've been studying this this disease for most of my career. One of the things we've discovered recently is that there's an enzyme called COX-2 It's the enzyme that all the drugs, all the NSAIDs work on this, Uh, even aspirin. But Motrin and and Celebrex, they all target this enzyme COX-2, which makes these cells grow. So we discovered in the lab that they do express this enzyme. And if you treated the cells in, in the tissue culture in the laboratory, With Celebrex, the cells stopped growing and started to die. So we're doing a big clinical trial right now to see if this is going to be a new treatment for this disease. Very exciting.
1: When you say a big clinical trial, I'm curious about this if it does not violate any confidentiality. What size is that trial?
2: Well, for most kind of trials, when people talk big, they talk thousands. Mm-hmm. We're talking 60 patients because, as I said, this is a rare disease.
1: Right. And in a case like that, how, what length of time is there associated with the trial?
2: Each patient is in the study for two and a half years, and the study's just finishing now. I don't have results yet, but what I can tell you again, it's a controlled study. Some people got Celebrex to start with, some people got placebo, but then they switched. And uh, what I can tell you is that we've got a number of patients that are absolutely free of disease who had really bad disease when they started. So, you know, could turn out that I have the world's best placebo, but something's happening.
1: When you complete the study and you're able to tabulate and calculate the results, how then do you go about the process, I guess, of sharing that with the world?
2: I would write papers that I would publish in the medical literature so doctors know about it. I would go to meetings and talk about it and use every mechanism, even what we're talking about today,
1: to spread the word very interesting, um because again, for most of us, this is a world that we're not familiar with you know we we may hear a term clinical trial, and in reality, we don't know unless we're an actual participant or somebody in our family has been one of in a study like this exactly what something like this is like, so thank you for giving us a peek into this world. An area that is studied as well, to shift from the discussion about the paviloma viruses, is something that a lot of the people listening to us, I'm assuming, would be familiar with, and that's in the area of arthritis.
2: Yes, because we think the immune system plays a role in lots of diseases and it clearly plays an important role in arthritis.
1: Knowledge about the role that the immune system plays in arthritis is that something that has been known for some time? Has that been a theory? Is it's that relatively been known new
2: for a number of years now because many of the drugs that we use including Celebrex. I had mentioned that that, uh, Celebrex is a COX-2 inhibitor. Many of the drugs that we use to treat arthritis are really treating the immune system. We're doing something new at the Feinstein right now that I think is very exciting. It's called bioelectronic medicine. And I'll bet you've never heard those words, and I'll bet most of the listeners haven't because it's a brand-new field. In a normal condition, when you're treated with a drug, when you have a disease like rheumatoid arthritis, you take a drug, whether it's Celebrex or Humira. The problem is that that drug goes every place in the body, and so you have side effects because it doesn't just go to the joints where the arthritis is. We have discovered, Dr. Kevin Tracy at the Feinstein and his group, have discovered that if you stimulate certain nerves to go from the brain to the body, that you can control the immune system, that you can turn it up when it needs to be stimulated, and you can turn it down when it's overactive in a disease like rheumatoid arthritis. And that means that when you stimulate it, it's affecting the immune system only at the right places. And that's, that's the potential for this, is huge. We're at the early stages of the field, um, just, just as an example with Dr. Tracy's work, he had done this work, he discovered how it affected the immune system, He showed in early studies in animals that it worked, and then he treated some patients. He's doing more studies now. But the very first patient that was enrolled in his study was a man with rheumatoid arthritis where nothing helped him, and he was essentially bedridden. And they they used a little device just to stimulate that one special nerve and within three months his arthritis was gone, he was back at work playing with his kids. And I think this is, like I said, one of the most exciting new areas I can think of.
1: Is there the figures that I had read heading into our discussion today is that you have about I think almost close to fifty million people in this country that are afflicted. With rheumatoid arthritis and pretty close to 20 million of them actually disabled uh, by this disease yeah that's a lot of people
2: a, it's a lot of people and maybe this is going to be a whole new answer without all the side effects that we have with the drugs that we're using now and you know the immune system plays a key role in a lot of diseases did you know it, it's involved in sepsis
1: no, I was going to ask you about uh, sepsis. And first of all, what exactly is sepsis?
2: Sepsis is a life threatening problem where the immune system just gets over excited and overactive to the point where it destroys body tissues. When you get an infection, let's say you get pneumonia, and your immune system gets activated. You want that to happen. And it produces chemicals. The, the immune system cells call, make, produce chemicals that call more cells to come to deal with the problem. If it gets out of hand, if it runs away like a runaway train, then these chemicals become damaging and they cause tissue damage. They can cause the lung to be damaged. And because they're circulating in the bloodstream to call in all the other cells, they go to the heart, they go to the kidneys, and then you have what we call sepsis, which is not the infection itself. It's the body's overreaction to the infection.
1: And are there specific signs um, or symptoms that you know patients or family members would be on the lookout for?
2: There are some. First of all, um, rapid onset being really sick especially if there's an infection or any tissue injury like in a car accident because damaged tissue can also activate the immune system. If there's any suspicion that it might be sepsis, family members should right away get the person to the hospital. Don't wait a couple of days to see if they're better, and and um, tell the people in the emergency room that you're worried that they might be septic. Now, this is this is you know being really sick when you're. When you're not just feeling like you've got a bad cold like I do, but when when the person suddenly becomes very weak and they are running a fever and they're starting to shake and you're getting lethargic and you're having trouble talking to them, get them to an emergency room. And then tell those people, you're worried that this might be sepsis because if they treat it early enough, you can stop it. If you wait too long, the damage is already done.
1: Mm. Uh, and again, an area that's, for a lot of people, probably not that much knowledge uh, Well, about.
2: people don't even know the word. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is that that word doesn't get used by doctors. Um, if you come in with pneumonia and it turns into sepsis, they tell you you have pneumonia. And if you die, that's what gets put on the birth, on the death certificate. They don't write sepsis. So we're probably even underestimating the problem. We had a big international conference at the Feinstein about three years ago on what And we created something internationally called the Sepsis Alliance to just raise awareness.
1: Betty Steinberg from the Feinstein Institute talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. That happens on the fan. Very interesting discussion that we are having with um, Betty Steinberg, who's Chief Scientific Officer with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. She is our guest on our program on the fan. I'm Bob Solter. We're in this discussion, there's a lot of different areas that we've gone talking about the work of the uh, Feinstein Institute. By the way, is the Institute on the web?
2: Yes, it is www.feinsteininstitute.org.
1: One of the areas that I wanted to go in this discussion is to talk a little bit about the brain because that's such a fascinating uh, area of the body that most people don't know that much about. Scientists at the Institute have come up with a new way, I guess, that's is it scanning the brain or mapping it or just what?
2: It's a way of scanning the activity of the brain so that you can see what the patterns are Uh, It uses something called PET scan. Dr. David Eidelberg is the leader in this area. And when you you do a PET scan, it isn't like an x-ray where you just see the structure. You see which areas are being very active and which areas are being quiet. So you get a functional picture instead of a photograph. And what Dr. Eidelberg has discovered, he's primarily a Parkinson's disease uh, scientist. He's trained as a neurologist Mm -hmm. and neuroscientist. And what he has discovered, when you look at the whole brain, not just the area that we know is a problem with Parkinson's, but if you look across the whole brain, you see a pattern that tells you that some areas are not functioning well because of the damage, but there are other areas that are hyperactive. They're trying to compensate. And interestingly, his recent work has shown that he can detect the abnormal pattern several years before the patient has the disease symptoms because the brain is already having trouble, but it's compensating. It's coping. You know, you can't use your left hand. All right, I'll use my right hand. And it's only when the problem gets progressively worse and the brain can't cope anymore that you start seeing the symptoms.
1: So if this is the case, could we possibly, I mean, do we dare even think there could be implications for the way in which Parkinson's is then viewed and treated?
2: It there certainly is. First of all, it means that we can look at drugs very early and see if they're working. We ideally what you would do is start treatment at the very earliest point, especially if you've got a family history or with other brain diseases, because this isn't just Parkinson's. They're finding similar patterns with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Not, it's not the same pattern, but they're finding that they can map out these patterns, and that means that you can start treatments much earlier. When you're not even sure yet that This is what it is. You do this brain scan, you get the pattern, you have the diagnosis, and you start treatment early. And we've been told for 50 years in medicine that it's always important to start treatment early, but for some diseases, we didn't have a good way to do that.
1: What about the area of stroke? Because this also impacts an awful lot of people.
2: Yes, it does. And it, it, you know, people who survive strokes have long-term problems afterwards. Um, We do have a research program. Again, I'm just talking a lot about the Feinstein, but I know the research that goes on there. We have a research program using robots as therapy for stroke. Dr. Bruce Volpe is running that program. The robots help the patients with stroke play a computer game on a screen. And what happens is they help, say you have a stroke and you can't use your right arm. The robot will move your arm for you so you can play the game. And, and as you start getting some control of that arm and can move it a little bit, the robot senses that, and backs off so you do as much as you can, and when you can't do any more, then it comes back in and helps you get the cursor to the target. It's really just hours of practice and exercise, but people are much more comfortable doing an exercise like that where they're playing a computer game than they are just exercising on a machine with a physical therapist. You know, people will will spend hours exercising their thumb on their iPhone playing Candy Crush. So uh, what happens with the brain, and we were talking before about com- compensatory or, or adjusting, with the stroke patient, the more you practice and do the rehab, the more you help train other areas of the brain to take over for the part that was damaged, and then those areas that take over can help move your arm again.
1: That's a fascinating um, development and a great idea there. You know, you think of the way in which people would interact with a robot, and as you were saying that initially in that answer, I was thinking, thinking about, all right, physical is the robot becoming then the physical therapist?
2: It's being used under the supervision of a therapist, but instead of the therapist doing one-on-one, one therapist could be supervising 10 patients, all sitting at their computer screens with their robots, all exercising at the same time. And it gives lots and lots of help and encouragement. Stroke patients need encouragement. They need to be encouraged to just keep working hard And exercising and trying and slowly getting back as much as you can. And then continue the exercise so you don't lose it again. Because that old adage, you know, use it or lose it, it happens with this too.
1: Well, barring access to robots for somebody who's recovering from a stroke, what, I guess, should they know or what is it that they can do on their own?
2: Well, the first thing they can do is get a good doctor, a good neurologist, and make sure you get sent to a good rehab facility with good therapists who will help you with the exercises. But a good part of it is the patient themselves. They just have to put in the hours and days and weeks of hard work that it requires to get back as much as you can to retrain new parts of your brain to take over for you.
1: We're talking on our program on the fans, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, with uh, Betty Steinberg. Uh, she is Chief Scientific Officer with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research, and she has joined us uh, by phone on our program. The Institute's on the web, by the way, at Feinstein Institute. That's F E I N S T E I N. I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E, all is one word, dot O-R-G, and she's kind enough to be talking with us. Now, when we talk about the kinds of areas where you focused in your work as a scientist, we also have to talk about, I guess, the role of women in science, if I can phrase it that way. Here, And I'm trying to be careful in... Phrasing, phrasing my words here because I don't want to come off as a sexist in saying this, but basically, it has been shown in a lot of different polls that women in science still lag behind men.
2: Why is that? I think there's several reasons for it. One is that society as a whole doesn't really encourage girls and women in science. If you're considered something of a little bit nerdy if you go into science, even though it's really great fun and very exciting and you're doing important stuff. So that's part of it. I think another thing is that in some ways the higher levels of science are still kind of an old boys' network. If you want somebody to lead a conference or – or Be the speaker at an important meeting, you think about your friends. And when you do that, if you're a man and you've been in the field a long time where most of the leaders were men, you think about your men friends and you invite them. And it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, maybe for some of the women. They have to, they can't be pushy. You don't want to do that either. But you have to be willing to speak up and volunteer. And say, you know, I'd like to be very active in this society, and I'd like to be active on that conference, and you know, maybe you could invite me. It's a little bit like dating, a little tricky, and maybe a little, <laughs> little uncomfortable, but to have to do it
1: that is an interesting analogy. Well, when we think of, I guess, the bigger picture here, policymakers. Even parents, dare I even say educators, how could they help?
2: First of all, they have to get over the idea that science is not for girls. That You have to encourage little girls and teenagers and college students that they can be successful in science. If this is your love, if this is your passion, go do it. You know, do what makes you happy, and if this is what you like don't don't put down the girls. There are studies that show that girls do much better in science and math classes in all girls' school than in schools with both boys and girls. Part of it may be the girls themselves not wanting to you know look unfeminine, but we just have to get over that. Everybody has to encourage all of our kids. To do whatever they love to do.
1: What a wonderful way to end our discussion. On you're very kind with your time. You've shared an awful lot with us, uh, Betty Steinberg, who is chief scientific officer with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research, uh, has talked with us on our program on the fan. Feinstein Institutes, that's all is one word.org the website. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, sharing the information that you have.
2: Thank you very
1: much. Well, that's going to do it for our Fun Fest this morning. Speaking of fun times, Ann Lagoria is along. She's talking golf after our top of the hour update. Rick Wolf, Sports Edge, follows our 8 o'clock update on the fan. And Ed Randall will be along talking baseball. This is Bob Salter. Always a pleasure to be with you on Sunday mornings. Have a great day, everybody. And